This episode is brought to you by Philly Gemstones. I do think that for women uh, in particular who are living pretty difficult lives, uh, who have left their homes, who are living with conflict, who can't leave their homes in some cases, it does matter to do something that brings a bit of pride and joy and relief and meditation. Mm. Uh, It is different than just getting a paycheck, I think. I think that's part of the the sort of magic, the alchemy of jewellery is that, you know, you take a flat sheet of metal and you, with your two hands and the tools you have, can transform that into something, the polish, the reflection. Mm. And if you set a stone and and within a few days, you can be wearing something that you've created out of that flat sheet of metal. And that's kind of magic, really. Welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm Carol Walton, the voice of jewellery an author, broadcaster, and the woman who initiated the role of jewellery editor at magazines like Tatler and British Vogue. This is a podcast for everyone, for people who do like jewellery, for people who don't realise they like jewellery, and anyone intrigued by fascinating facts, new ideas, and forgotten histories. So please join me as I tell sparkly tales, meeting all sorts of people, delving into four centuries of jewellery culture, and investigate what's happening now. So welcome to If Jewels Could Talk. I'm very happy to talk about a very important initiative this morning that's happening for women in different areas of conflict. And I'm joined by Pippa Small, jewellery designer, anthropologist, activist, traveller. I mean, she's so, so many things. She's also the only person I'm going to allow on the podcast to make a noise. Usually I say to people, take off everything. But Pippa never takes her jewellery off. How many bracelets do you have on, Pippa? Oh, my God. I have no idea. I would say maybe 40 or something. They're 40. They're all stones. They're turquoise. They're labradorite. They're amethyst. What else are there? Crab beads. There's all sorts of things. They're all gathered from years and years of... And you never take these off? No, never. She's got probably five large necklaces on of huge pieces of Labradorite. Massive. (laughs) (laughs) So she's the only person that I'm not telling not to make noise because it's it's you. You sleep in them, don't you? Yeah, yeah. How do you sleep at night with all this going on? I just on? curl up with them. I like them. I like the weight. I like the feel. I, I don't know. It's It's been years and years. I'm used to it. I would be... I think my children the other day were horrified when I had to take off um, the big shell for something and they were kind of, you've never seen your wrist. Put it back. You have naked <laughs> It's <wrist>. not you. <laughs> yeah, so I put it back and that's that. <laughs> so what we're going to talk about first is um, Turquoise Mountain. For anyone who doesn't know, it is an incredibly important charity that was founded by the king. It was. And could you tell us a little about the initiative and how it started? It started in 2006 as, um, I think, a conversation between uh, the then Prince Charles and Hamid Karzai. And I think the idea was a recognition that people in conflict areas, and in Afghanistan in particular, where it started, um, need a sense of culture, a sense of heritage and continuity and history in the past. And and that's sort of personified by things like architecture and craft. And so I think there was a a pragmatic side, which was to see that craft can provide jobs. It can, um, you know, give a sense of uh, self-confidence, a sense of grounding of place and pride and and that to continue because after so many years of conflict these sort of precious skills do disappear and there I think Afghanistan was at that point where um, some of the master wood carvers were you know working in the market selling vegetables and there was obviously no space during conflict for these arts so I think the the point was to kind of stop and before things had disappeared give them space and give them the respect and the continuation by training young people in these skills. And so it's an incredibly insightful and enlightened position to take, I think, because in conflict, um, you know, that so much is lost, but the importance of having a sense of who you are, you know, history is so important for us as humans. And I think they, they kind of did an incredible job with Rory Stewart creating this beautiful institute, which is in an old part of the city, but it's kind of all thick, 
earth architecture so you know walls that are incredibly deep and and carved jolly work in the, the wood so you have this scent of pine you have this beautiful wall it's just kind of everything in there is tactile and central and beautiful and I think when people come the students when they come in off the streets of this city that's in this sort of turmoil and there's too many guns and tanks and tension they come into the school and I think the beauty of it and the serenity of the craftsmanship just makes people feel different makes them feel better and you know a kind of cocoon of being wrapped up in something that is about the goodness in humans what we can do that's beautiful as opposed to the destruction that we're also capable of but I think the school that they started there is is an extraordinary um, example of something that was very important and has been incredibly successful training thousands of young people in jewelry making and in jewelry making in Um, calligraphy woodwork Ceramics, miniature paintings. Furniture. Yeah. And using indigenous materials that they can get hold of locally. Yeah. I guess it's part of reminding people of their identity, their culture. Exactly. That's the key. As you say, before it's wiped out or taken away. Yeah. The other vital part is it's enabling people to be employed and to economically survive. Exactly. The most crucial part at the end of the day is their jobs provided. And, and as we know in countries like Afghanistan, every one person who's working and bringing in an income is supporting, you know, 30 other people. So it's kind of each person is so crucial um, in keeping communities alive, particularly for women when, when the project started it was you know a vital source of independence and having a sort of sense of autonomy and self-determination which was amazing people making decisions for themselves you know it's a a revolutionary and fantastic thing but the income was vital and continues to be vital it's it's the most important part of the whole project is it gives an income and a livelihood through creativity which is even better and how many are there how many Turquoise Mountains in particular cities are there? Well, there's um, Kabul, there is in Saudi Arabia, in Myanmar and in Jordan. And it's sort of counterintuitive that jewellery would be very important in times of conflict. It, it completely seems mad. <laughs> it's true. When you think of women and, and what jewellery seems to represent to us, it, it does seem completely counterintuitive, as you say. But it has its place. And it's amazing that it does. And I think jewellery in particular, because of its kind of emotional context, because of its relationship to memory, to the fact that we love it so much and we treasure it and it's got an economic value, but it's also something very emotionally powerful in jewellery, as we know. So I think the fact that jewellery has a role at this time is is interesting. But it's also it allows women to still feel feminine, still feel beautiful, still, you know, these qualities that even in conflict you know, life goes on. People fall in love and get married and children are born and meals are cooked. And despite things that are going on in, in the rest of the country, it's sort of life goes on. So I think jewellery somehow speaks to that. It's kind of, you know, women still want to feel they make things and create beautiful things that make them feel, that makes their soul feel soothed, perhaps. Actually, when I've gone through the Vogue archives for when I was writing Vogue, the jewellery, I mean, during the war years, particularly the First World War, uh, Vogue was admonishing readers, saying just because there is a war on, that there was no excuse for <laughs> not, no, <laughs> not looking after yourself, not presenting yourself. Yes. You yes. need to buy yes. jewellery. Yes, how and, interesting. Um, they were sort of admonishing them, saying, yeah. you know, this is part. This is yes. something you must do, which yeah. is important. Yeah. So you were very closely involved in the setting up of these centres. Yeah, I mean, I came on board in 2008 and that actually the school hadn't yet been built. So there was there was teaching going on, but the centre hadn't actually been finished. And um, part of what I came out to do when I, on the first trip was to create a collection that was inspired by the Bactrian. Did you see the Bactrian collection? It was at the British Museum and then it was in the Metropolitan. And it's a collection of gold that was um, kept in the museum in Kabul and it was from the Silk Route so you had the Chinese influence you had Greek and Roman you had Indian even Indonesian and it was as Afghanistan was almost the center of the Silk Route mm-hmm. the treasures that were there from thousands of years ago were extraordinary particularly the gold work and that collection was kind of taken out of Kabul I think in the, it was buried actually during the 90s when the Taliban were in power last time to keep it safe and then it was taken out of the country and it's been touring ever since but the idea initially when I went out was to create a collection inspired by um, mm-hmm. these ancient treasures uh, that potentially could be sold in museums alongside and things. So that was my first introduction. And going out was kind of, I don't know, it was one of those 
I knew it was going to be really important the moment I said yes. And um, now nearly 15 years later, it's still such an enormous part of my life. But it was a sort of life-changing trip because it was a country that um, I had known about and always been fascinated with, but had never imagined I'd get the you know opportunity to go. And arriving in this, I mean, I suppose it was you know, eight years after the change of government and things, but it was a fascinating and beautiful and I just fell in love with every aspect, the people, the the landscapes. It was, it still is just an incredible place. So that was the beginning of a sort of love affair with the country and the culture. And you're there um, encouraging women and men to learn to design. Yes, yes. I mean, the design process has been very interesting because it's sort of, Afghanistan was quite a sort of isolated and very traditional country. And I think the idea at the time for an artisan was to copy their teacher, their ustad, as exactly and precisely as they could so that, you know, generation after generation after generation, they would recreate as closely as they could the work from the past. Of course, it would change and, and you know, develop, but it, it didn't kind of explode. I mean, when you think of these sort of ideas from the West of creating designs that are, um, you know, all about us, it's my design. <laughs> this is something I have created and thought of and, you know, imagined and visualized and, and now made real. These were completely alien concepts. It was sort of, it's a collective um, aesthetic that just kind of kept rolling. And so when we sort of started working and, and it was, you know, about looking and talking to young people about, you know, when they'd say, well, how do you know what to design? To, to kind of start using those, their eyes in a different way and exercising a different muscle of looking for inspiration everywhere in, in their homes, in the city, in their mother's dress, you know, the embroidery and the plates, you know, finding inspiration, ceramics and cobblestones and in, in patterns and, you know, just starting to use a different set of um, senses in a way. But it was a quite an odd idea because it was like, you know, this sort of egocentric idea of it being somehow a kind of individually created idea was was quite alien. And so it's it's been an interesting process of looking at, because what they have that's particularly strong is their heritage and their culture. It's not that they need to compete with China or India that are producing jewelry at extraordinary volumes and scales and things. They have to talk about what's theirs because that's what's unique about what they have so just that process of learning to look I'm sort of looking around the room trying to find examples but you know you find textures and patterns and then you just think how do we want to recreate that in something that works with the body and and that was a process that was really interesting and now men and women are coming up with amazing designs often you know inspired by a grandmother's necklace or just things they feel they want to express but in a in a very beautiful collective way not in this kind of ego-driven way I think we sometimes fall um, victim to here. And these translate very well because you often have exhibitions and sales at your shop in London's Notting Hill. Yeah. And I've seen them. I mean, they're they're beautiful designs. Yeah, thank you. And they're very wearable. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's, that's been the challenge actually everywhere I work from you know, from Colombia and Myanmar and um, different parts of Africa is to kind of pull out an essence or a a voice, if you like, or a a kind of handprint of somewhere and be able to translate it to a a market that is elsewhere where people may not particularly be interested in Afghanistan or may not know anything about Myanmar or, or, you know, Middle Eastern cultures or African or, but you kind of hope that it translates in a way that you just think, I love this piece of jewellery. But perhaps they feel somewhere, even if it's subconsciously, that someone made this and that person has a whole life and a history and emotional life. But somewhere it's in that, embedded in that piece. Mm. That's my hope that it kind of comes across. And sparks an interest, sparks a conversation and finding out about it. Yeah, exactly. And where it came from and and what the inspiration was. Exactly. And then you want that drawn back towards some of these women creatives, these female creatives, to help them and support them. Exactly. And I guess the more feedback they get, from is, is better oh absolutely yeah I think um it's very far away and it's it's quite cut off and I think the the fact that their jewelry and their work is sold around the world and and being bought and worn by women in other places is such an incredibly important mm. and powerful message for them mm. they're being heard and seen mm. and and their work is appreciated it's amazing so there must have been many obstacles in setting up these centers 
I think um, Turquoise Mountain does an incredible job of quietly getting <laughs> diplomatically kind of doing what they need to yeah, do. To... We're going to Rosh Hashanah about some exactly. of those obstacles. But yeah. you personally traveling to some mm. of these places mm. must have been very difficult. There have been times when there have been incidences and attacks in the city when I've been there and it can be quite frightening. What's the most frightened you've been? Um, I think I remember once there was an attack and I didn't... Re- I remember um, phone not working and not knowing there was sort of rumours. Rumours are always kind of the most alarming things, like all foreigners being rounded up and killed or something and you just get this kind of, where do I go, what do I do? But it was never like that. It was always fine. But there can be moments when you feel a little like that. <laughs> I think there was once an attack outside a workshop where I was working. But again, everyone in the workshop was so calm and reassuring. I remember the women coming in, holding my hand and saying, don't worry, we'll look after you. And me thinking, here we are, a bunch of women <laughs> with no entrance or exit other than onto the street. But it was fine. It, it was kind of, I, I think what I tended to do was get very nervous before travelling. And I was there a few months ago, which was the first time since the change of government and um, post-COVID. And so I was a little nervous about, you know, what sort of reception I'd have. But actually, once I'd sort of got over the initial fears and land, once landing, you just felt, ah, I'm here. And then to see everyone in the workshop was the greatest joy and everyone we work with. It was just a sort of, you know, to say it was an amazing trip is an understatement. Of course, you know, economically things are very challenging and things are hard, but to be able to see people again and just, you know, hold hands and, and smile and was amazing. It was truly an incredible trip. Because you, you, over the years, you've taken your young children on these travels. I, I have you? taken them places, but never to Afghanistan, I have not to say. No, I hope one day, but mm. not now. <laughs> I remember actually, for my book, The New Stone Age, we talked about sometimes your fear of travelling yeah. beforehand and you take turquoise with you. Yes, you? Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm so superstitious. I, yeah, I'm probably putting this on the children now. They start getting, you, know, you must wear this bead and, you know, and I do it to them when they go somewhere. It's like, you have to wear this tile with jewellery on them and... So what do you tie on them? What do you tie on them? <laughs> on them, the poor things. They, they both have um, navratnas that mm-hmm. are made just for them with a, a stone doctor in India who each stone was kind of checked to make sure it was right for each child. And then they um, have sort of evil eye beads with sort of, you know, natural agates with eyes on them to keep them safe and um, their birthstone or poor little things <laughs> weighed down with <laughs> and, my and what do neurosis. they like you to wear what do they pick up for you to wear <laughs> well um something they've made perhaps they because they go in the stone drawers and pull things out and make things and then they tie them on and ensure that i make sure i bring it back with me when i come safely home <laughs> that's very sweet uh, sweet but i'm probably yeah instilling a kind of neurotic <laughs> <laughs> no it's a sort of like you're taking something of them with you, so yeah. that's probably very comforting yeah. to them, yeah. Yeah. isn't it? It is, and to me. Mm. And so now recently you've taken the legacy of Turquoise Mountain mm. and created something new called yeah. Zindagi now. Zindagi. Zindagi. And could you tell us about Zindagi and how it's, it's, it's built on Turquoise Mountain, but it's starting something new? Exactly. It's um, a fantastic initiative that um, my partner in Afghanistan, business partner, and I started last spring. And the idea is to create a safe space for women to produce jewellery and have training on the side. But it's it's kind of a production unit. So they have a safe job to earn an income, uh, to be together, most importantly, so they can talk and laugh and gossip. And, and this is allowed by the Taliban? <laughs> it has been allowed um, as it's, it's a workplace, which is, mm-hmm. you know, I think the new government is well aware that women have to earn an income and help support families. So they have And you can only have women in there? It's just mm-hmm. women, women guards, women teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a wonderful atmosphere. It's productive. Their work is beautiful. It gives them such a sense of pride and... It's, it's amazing. It's also, you know, a vital source of income for them. They're supporting their families, their parents, their children, grandchildren, some of them. Some of them are younger, some older, all different backgrounds. But they're, so how many women? At the moment, they're 60. Mm-hmm. And we would like to increase all different ages yes. and all different backgrounds. So some women had been professionals, lawyers, some were school age. So mixture of backgrounds, some... What are they speaking? What language? Dari, mostly. Mm-hmm. And some are, they're from all over the country, so you have... Hazara and Pashtun and but it's just this beautiful kind of melting pot of women from different backgrounds social backgrounds economic backgrounds and and geographic and they're working together and producing things and supporting each other and and making a vital income so 
So yeah. this must be a very unusual thing in Kabul at the moment. Yes, I think at the moment it is. And it's fantastic. So it's a lifeline, literally yeah. a lifeline. Yeah, it is. To a lot of these women. And yeah. they must, um, must be very grateful to you. They're the most wonderful group of women imaginable. I mean, just, you know, the, I always think we use this word resilience now a little sort of loosely, but, you know, truly to see these women who have challenges that we can't even imagine, you know, but just to see their positivity and their smiles. And so their... what kind of challenges? I mean, to get to you every day, what kind of challenges would they face? We provide cars and taxis so that they can it's come not to safe work. On the street for them. I think it, it would be wiser to come by car mm. and things. Well, it's, it's more of the economic crisis. I think, mm. you know, workers... For families, a lot of jobs are being lost in general. So, you know, everyone is relying on whoever can get a job is the breadwinner now. So, And do you give these women a hot meal in the middle of the There's day? A hot meal, exactly. <laughs> hot meal and a warm space to work. And, and I think that the importance of, of being together cannot be underestimated as well because, you know, women who can't work, it's, it's quite a tough life to be housebound. So the fact that they can get out and be together is... Mm-hmm. Priceless. Mm-hmm. Have you had the first designs from them yet? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and they're fantastic. We sort of felt it was quite good as, as they are um, new to making and designing to keep things quite simple. And But, you know, in the end, simple is always the best, isn't it? I mean, that's the kind of the biggest challenge is to create something simple that's beautiful and wearable and stunning. But, you know, we don't have to kind of reinvent the wheel. It's like beautiful cuffs, very simple bangles, really simple kind of textured rings um, working in silver, beautiful earrings of kind of coiled silver, as well as um, there's one piece we're uh, selling that is raising money for um, the meals and transport and so forth. And that's a a rough piece of aquamarine or two rough pieces of aquamarine and a kind of gold-plated bowl, which is a really simple design. But but the the work they're doing is is fantastic. And where can people get hold of that? Can they get it on your website? On the website, yes. (laughs) Pippersmall.com. Yes. Yes. And will you have an exhibition in Notting Hill at any point? I think we will, definitely. Okay. We're, we're, the work is, um, you know, every day they're learning more and and the sales are, are great and really providing that lifeline. So what do you will. what do you call the little um, agate on the... The, the, aqua, the aquamarine, aquamarine on the... It's, it's the Zindagi now. The Zinda- and so actually... We should all wear this as a sign of solidarity with these women. Because 100% of the profits are going to Mm. provide the meals and the transport and the rent and so forth. And Mm -hmm. it is a business, so the women are also um, being paid. It's just, it's, it's nice to help support Mm. the other parts. And what is it on the... It's on the um, gold cords. It's a, it's a nylon cord that's gold. It's a gold thread. I mean, it doesn't Mm -hmm. contain gold, but it's gold colored and it has a little sparkle. So it's lovely Mm -hmm. and strong. So it doesn't break. But yes. We should all well, wear them. I'm definitely going to wear a Zindagi pendant. <laughs> they would be very proud. And I've seen your photographs coming back from these places. They mm. wear the most bright, colourful clothes, don't they? They look so beautiful. Yeah, I think they're so proud of, you know, their particular, whichever, you know, ethnic group they're from. Like mm. The Pashtun have, you know, beautiful embroidery and, yeah, with the mirrored belts and the beautiful sleeves. And yeah, they're amazing. Yeah, really beautiful. All the, the colour that you just, that's not what you expect when you think of Afghan clothing <laughs> and what is their culture of wearing jewelry deep and long culture of wearing mm-hmm. jewelry um i suppose if you go back long enough it was gold during mm-hmm. that kind of bactrian period when the greeks were there and there was such extraordinary trade routes and then more recently i would say um silver for daily but equally when a woman gets married it's gold 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 gold, gold, gold. and how much gold. as much as you as much as me <laughs> <laughs> depending how lucky she is <laughs> but big gold necklaces um and that will be hers so you know that's her pension it's her pension her insurance everything yeah yeah. So it must be very noisy in the workshop with all of you clanking around. <laughs> clanking and chatting. And <laughs> yeah, I think the gold is reserved for you know, special, special occasions. occasions. Yeah. But lots of bracelets in the yeah, day. Yeah, and they're mm. so proud when they're wearing things they've made as well, which mm-hmm. is really mm-hmm. cool. Because that is the, I think that's part of the, the sort of magic, al- the alchemy of jewellery is that, you know, you take a flat sheet of metal and you, with your two hands and the tools you have, can transform that into something, the polish, the reflection. The, mm. And if you set a stone and, and within a few days, you can be wearing something that you've created out of that flat sheet of metal. And that's mm. kind of 
magic really it's a miracle I find it everywhere we work and you know with different refugee groups in Jordan and things it's it's that sort of empowerment of transformation you know taking something that I think traditionally would be quite a male dominated area that worked in the metal the goldsmiths and that tended to be men mm. and for a woman to take that and transform it into something she wears is is very powerful I think mm. and satisfying <laughs> It is, and it's sort of wearing that power. Yeah. Wearing yeah. that power and taking it with you if yeah. they have to move. Yeah. It, yeah. And the skill. Take it. And the skill. Which means they can set up a business anytime. Mm. I mean, are. since you um, established your business, you really have been the sort of ethical jeweller. You sure. sort of have, you have <laughs> led the way. Because you. you were talking about this and, and where stones came from and the importance of where you sourced your gold, helping other artisans from the very beginning yeah and you feel the industry is just sort of beginning to catch up with you <laughs> it has been a slow um i think it's because i came from a, a background of anthropology and then it working in human I was rights to say, how important was your background in anthropology hugely because it's always been about people i think that's mm. you know the starting point was about the people i worked with and how they lived their lives how their work and their as artisans how that impacted and how it um changed and and was challenged and by circumstances so it was always about people and then of course the health and happiness of people is dependent on you know where their materials are sourced and how they're sourced so you look at miners and you look at extraction and it all leads back of course to the earth and that's obviously the biggest issue we have facing us um, with climate but yes it started with people and it's it's always been the most centrally important things and and women and and then how we extract but equally this this other layer of the continuation of culture is also as important to us as people I think so between you know earth and how how the mining is done like this recent project we've been working in Colombia where the gold is panned and to meet these women who are panning gold is incredible because they're very articulate very political and they're aware that gold has this kind of value to the community because it as they say it drives the engine of their entire economy it was an interesting to see gold in the positive you know this the bits of gold they pan with a wooden bowl and the so way there's they no did mercury or no mercury no cyanide no arsenic. no one going down into dangerous no, tunnels no and um plans for other centers um hopefully uh working with palestinians um that's another project coming and in my dreams of the next year or so, I would like to start working with a Roma community in Romania, which I think will be really interesting. That would be so interesting. Yeah. There's a project to work with um, Roma on all their traditional crafts, which is yeah, basket weaving and instrument making, but also metalsmithing and jewellery. So that one I'm really They literally to. carried all their money yeah. in necklaces, didn't yeah. they? Go coins. Exactly. And, yes. Yeah. The root of But yes, a lot of kind of dreams of different places <laughs> to collaborate on the line well we wish you luck put on your turquoise because how, how many months do you spend traveling a year <laughs> um well i seem to travel every month or so somewhere mm-hmm. for a longer or shorter trips but yeah a lot of traveling when you hear her coming everybody <laughs> <laughs> but i'm gonna go and click on and get my zindagi pendant now. thank you Carol. so thank, thank you, you so me. much for sharing that with us thank you Pippa. thank you thank you <laughs> So now I'm delighted to continue the discussion about Turquoise Mountain with the president, Shoshana Stewart, who has um, been working with Turquoise Mountain for 17 years since it was founded by the king and her husband, Rory Stewart, the ex-politician and founder of the worldwide global hit podcast, The Rest is Politics. (laughs) with Alistair Campbell. So Shoshana, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. And you're in Jordan at the moment. I am indeed. And you're living in Jordan. I do, I do. It's yeah. a wonderful place to live. I highly recommend it. And you're kind of, and that is the, probably the centre of Turquoise Mountain, is it? Well, it's a good question. I mean, a lot of the projects have grown recently. I, Afghanistan is our heart and where we began. And I have about 230 full-time staff there. So that's our biggest project. But Jordan is is very central, partially because it's the center of our work across the Levant, working with Syrian, Jordanian, Palestinian artisans. So feels feels very central, yes. And what I'd love to know is what was the premise behind it? 
Was this the king's idea? Was it between a discussion between Rory, your husband, and the king that they came up with the idea? Yes. So how we began was a conversation between His Majesty the King when he was the Prince of Wales 17, 18 years ago with the then president of Afghanistan, President Karzai. And they were at the Prince's School of Traditional Arts in London, which is an extraordinary institution, just very high quality, wonderful art education, very grounded in Islamic art. And President Karzai said, oh, what a wonderful thing. I wish we had this in my country. We have these incredible traditions, but the younger generation is not, past, is not taking them up, right? So the, the Prince of Wales, um, who, who really is a serial entrepreneur in some ways, uh, said, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> um, I don't think anybody thought that was actually going to happen. Called Rory, said, go to Kabul, check it out. Rory went thinking, this is not going to happen. And came back and said, actually, do you know what? I'd love to do it. Found an amazing neighborhood in the old city that needed, um, was falling apart. Half the buildings had, had collapsed and, and we started. And he's an intrepid traveler, your husband. He, yes, he's done a bit of traveling. Um, the Afghanistan connection for him was that he walked across quite a lot of Asia uh, between 2000 and 2002. So um, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Nepal, wrote a book about the Afghan section so he had, you know, spent, spent time walking through Afghanistan in the winter of 2001, 2002. So right after the Taliban had been taken out of power last time. So um, experienced Afghanistan with no government, basically, but the extraordinary hospitality of being put up in village houses every night, week after week, and just, just seeing the country through nature and through this extraordinary minaret of jam in the middle of the mountains. And so I think he, he sort of fell in love with Afghanistan, which I eventually did too. Which is why it's called Turquoise Mountain. Which is why it's called Turquoise Mountain, yes. Will you tell that story about what it's named after? Absolutely. So um, you must look up the minaret of jam, the minaret of jam. It is an mm. extraordinary minaret in the centre of Afghanistan. And it was, it is the last remaining monument of the dynasty of the Turquoise Mountain, but nobody knows that anymore. And it was a, a civilization destroyed by Genghis Khan. And so it, it evokes a great civilization lost to history, which is so the point of Turquoise Mountain is to preserve the loss of, mm. of traditions. And your husband visited that and looked around it. And did he find anything there? Well, yes, um, but didn't take any of it with him, crucially. No. Um, he, um, <laughs> yes, he sort of walked up into the minaret and... Uh, looked down and, you know, it's really, I mean, it's very, very empty, that, that part of Afghanistan. I mean, very rural Afghanistan in the mountains. Um, but when he got further up, he looked down and saw, you know, all of these sort of pits and people all over. And what they were doing is digging up treasures and looting. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's an extraordinary monument and Afghanistan has an extraordinary history. So he went to Kabul. And how long did it take him to get... Um, set up and founded in this building that he, he discovered? Well, <laughs> so I showed up about six months into the thing in September 2006. I was a teacher, a science teacher, and going on an adventure, got a job volunteering with them. So I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. But I, my first sort of memory of Turquoise Mountain and of him actually is being picked up at the airport as a volunteer, driven to my new home, which was this 18th century mud fort on the outskirts of Kabul. On the wall, the, the two-story high mud wall, were two pairs of legs. One was a, a shalwar kameez, the sort of wide-legged um, traditional Afghan trousers. Um, and the other was a suit, a gray suit, and sort of English brogues. Um, and that was Rory sitting on the top of the wall talking to a mason. And I get in there, and there's already a calligraphy school and a woodworking school. And there are, you know, a hundred masons fixing all these mud walls, fixing the tower, fixing up the building. So... Um, he got going very quickly. I think, you know, that was a lesson for all of us. And that was a building that we restored and used as um, the beginning of this Institute for Afghan Arts and Architecture that has been running now for, for all that time, for 17 years. But that was our actually temporary home because what we were doing was in the old city, restoring 150 buildings, family houses, clinic, primary school, hammam, Bazaar Street, um, and eventually that would be the home of the Institute. So when we had restored enough of those buildings, the Institute moved into these incredible 
courtyard, mud brick timber frame courtyard buildings with these beautiful fruit trees in the middle of them, roses. Mm, it sounds divine. It is divine. And how many skills are encompassed within those buildings? How many different skills, traditional crafts? Gosh, I mean, countless. And, and we've had a lot of fun documenting them from motifs to, to materials. So you have mud bricks and not only the way you make mud bricks, but the way you use them. So these mud buildings are very seismically resistant. So they're, they're done in these very diagonal patterns in between timber frames. So you have the timber building, you have the mud brick. Then there is the, it's called simgel, which is the, the mud facade. And that's made of a particular type of clay with a particular uh, sort of reed fiber, very fine fiber. So that's one type of mud plastering. Then there's decorative mud plastering where they, they make very beautiful floral decorations. Sometimes they paint them. There's lime plastering. But then you get into um, and carpentry. I mean, incredible, incredible wood carving. We do two types, Kabuli floral, Timurid style wood carving, and then a, a shallower Nuristani style chip carving. But then you get into building trades that are important for making traditional buildings exist in the modern world, which is that you got to lay water pipes without ruining it. You got to lay internet and you got to lay electricity without just, you know, tagging plastic cords onto the outside. So trying to integrate modern services into traditional buildings in a sympathetic way. Tell us about the jewellery space you have within that and how many artisans do you have working there? So jewellery is one of the great, great joys of Afghan craft. And I say that both because it's, you know, something we can love and wear, but also because it takes advantage of one of the incredible natural resources that Afghanistan has, which is basically every gem except diamonds and sapphires. Uh, so rubies, emeralds, aquamarine, iconically lapis lazuli. Which the Egyptians had to come and get it from Afghanistan, didn't they? Exactly. Tutankhamun's mm. tomb, that lapis lazuli is from Afghanistan. Um, you know, topaz, tourmaline, aquamarine, kunzite, I go on. But <laughs> that wealth in the ground doesn't matter to the Afghan people in economic terms unless you can make a finished product out of it. That's really where where you can, um, you can build an economy off of it. Um, and so we have students that train for three years in the institute, and then they graduate, set up businesses, and we help them to export. So we have dozens of jewelry graduates who've set up businesses. A number of them are working in the old city now, women and men who are exporting to, you know, Museum Shop, the Museum of Islamic Art in Doha, 10,000 Villages, uh, a wonderful store in America, Ishkar, a great sort of London, Paris-based e-commerce site. Mm -hmm. So all of these little businesses are, are sitting up, sitting there in the old city producing. And they are creating using their traditional crafts. So it's all hand done and they are learning to carve stones, create metal shanks. Yes. I'm wondering, do they have to slightly adapt their design to suit a Western taste if they're selling in different countries? They absolutely have to adapt. And that's part of the, the challenge and the fun of it. So the Institute is very much a trainer of traditional techniques. This is about, you know, traditional Turkmen jewelry and particular filigree work and the way that stones were polished and set, etc. So they're learning a lot of traditional techniques and motifs in their first three years of education, but they're also learning about design and business. So they're learning about technical drawing, chain making, they're wonderful at handmade chain making. So then the question is, how do you sell? And this is where they are doing what artisans have done throughout time of innovating and working to patrons and clients. And that's where Pippa Small is probably the greatest example of the way that a designer interacts with uh, an artisan and a group of artisans. You know, she will come and sit with an individual artisan and I just watch her light, eyes light up and sometimes they don't even use a translator and the two of them will draw things. And that will be about an Afghan artisan um, I'm not going to say her name because because she's in Afghanistan, but, yes. um, you know, an Afghan artisan showing particular motifs that she loves and where that came from, from traditional Afghan jewelry and talking and choosing stones. Why is the emerald best here or why is the tourmaline best here? And then Pippa will take what she knows will sell in London. She's, she's taking what will work in a market sense and what works for her aesthetic but she's doing it with this Afghan artisan so that it has a very particular Afghan root to it. And it will be a collaborative design process um, celebrated with both of those people. But ultimately, 
Peppa is creating a route to market and she has, you know, in some ways, single-handedly sort of built, uh, rebuilt, I would say, the new Afghan uh, jewelry industry. And you have other designers coming out. I think at one point you had Vicky Sarge, didn't you? Yes, Vicky has been a wonderful support, not only to Afghan artisans, but Saudi artisans as well. I think the um, the willingness of people to travel to Afghanistan has gone up and down over time, as you might expect. Pippa has been traveling there throughout, and I was out was there very recently as well. And I think the most incredible uh, designers are those who travel to the countries in which we work to work directly with the artisans. That's a big ask. There are designers and brands who want to work from afar, but actually, you can. I think we've learned from COVID that you can do quite a lot virtually. And the point is that we're sitting there in Afghanistan. So, you know, our design center lead, Mari Momar, or the teachers or the business mentors will sit there and over Zoom and, and then we'll send samples. And so the designer can feel and can look at the quality of the stones and the, the type of filigree work, etc. So you can make it work from afar as well. Just a longer process. Yeah. I think that's right. So is it fair to say that um, some of the people working in Kabul at the moment with Pippa are some of the lucky women who are actually having an education right now? Yes, I think that um, we are able to operate so much more than I could have ever expected, but it's incredibly variable. Mm -hmm. And what matters is that we have continued our work throughout. We never stopped. And so we as an organization and, and our staff are known and trusted by everyone around us. So there isn't anything hidden. And so that enables, as you say, the lucky women who are able to to continue to engage, um, that they're able to do so um, when they're in the female-only space that we have, for example. So is that one of the major challenges when you go to set up new Turquoise Mountain that you are dealing with with local governments? Is, is that one of the big challenges? Yes, I suppose. Well, we were set up to work for Afghanistan, as I explained. But as I've, as I've thought of other countries and decided to set up other projects. So how many other projects are so there? So there are four in total. Four. So Afghanistan, Myanmar, Saudi Arabia, and the Levant, Jordan. The point is we work where heritage and communities are under threat. So that looks like conflict a lot of the time. Mm, mm. But in the case of Jordan, Jordan is not in conflict, but we're working with Syrians, Jordanians, and Palestinians, many of whom are refugees, etc. Um, in Saudi Arabia, that's not, a, that's not a country in conflict, but that's a country growing in the economic rate of knots and trying to preserve traditions and, and employ mostly women with those forces of modernization. That's a different kind of threat, which is in some ways, in some ways the most more powerful around the world. But I work with some of the most difficult, particularly if we're talking about Afghanistan and Myanmar, some of the most difficult governments and regimes in the world. I mean, the international community does not have a relationship with with those two governments. So the key thing is that we're completely neutral. I don't have an opinion about the Taliban government. If I have an opinion about being grateful that they are allowing us to do some things or some things that I wish they wouldn't do, I'm not going to say it. That just ends my operational ability tomorrow. I am completely neutral. So, but, but in some ways that's helpful because it's not a question of whether I am supporting the Taliban or government or against them or whether I'm speaking out against them. I just don't do that. And so, yes, it's a challenge, but it's sort of baked into what we do. It's not, you know, that's by design. So I think working with those governments and just the operational reality, yes, it's a challenge, but it's by design. I, I think the larger challenge probably is that because those are the places in which we work, nothing is reliable. So for the communities we work with, the things that are reliable for us, education, healthcare, clean water, the electricity working is not reliable. Security, that you're not going to have to leave your home, is not reliable. And so the idea that I would just be working on jewelry, on preserving those traditions, doesn't make sense in that context because a woman running a business is not going to be able to focus or come to work if her kid's not in school. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or if she's dealing with the trauma of having left her home in Syria seven years ago and not having dealt with that or begun to deal with that. And so the challenge for the families that we work with is that they live in conflict and insecurity. The challenge for us then is 
I got to run programs that, that meet communities at every level. So we run primary schools. We run a, a maternal child health clinic in Kabul. We deal with mental health. My challenge in that is just it's a very nasty funding matrix to try to get people supporting all those different things. But um, in the end, it, it is what works. So you have to get really stuck into individuals' lives to enable them to take part in Turquoise Mountain. Yes, it's a pretty intensive involvement, but it's mm. what I love. I mean, mm. you know, I have probably 400 staff around the world um, and 390 of them are in those countries and 380 of them are from those countries. So it's not so much that we go and try to form a deep relationship. We just are there. We are there and we'll stay for as long as we want to and need to to have a deep ongoing relationship with artisans and their and their families and their communities. I always think that jewellery actually is a very good antidote to um, mental health issues because I think there's something very comforting and uplifting about making things. I think also repetitive actions, small repetitive actions, are, are sort of meditative in a way. I couldn't agree more. We actually really see it here in Jordan because our jewellery programs here are focused on women and about half are Syrian and half are Jordanian, particularly for the Syrian women who in most cases left their homes, you know, seven-ish years ago. And there is no moment to deal with what they are dealing with. Often they're single mothers with young children, children who spent a lot of time in refugee camps. I mean, it's an unmanageable situation. But when they have been through number of months in the course and then and then possibly going into setting up a business, particularly as they're studying, as they get some stability and as they experience what you're talking about, which is the real therapy of repetitive movement, of beauty, of interacting in an environment with a lot of other women professionally, the walls come down and they begin to really need to deal with that trauma. And so that's where we have have, have needed to, to deal with mental health issues um, but it, in some ways, that is a, a tribute to the power of making because it makes people feel comfortable. And using their hands. Absolutely. And I imagine by preserving some of these crafts and traditions, you're really essentially preserving their home for them in some way. Yes, I think that preserving traditions, craft traditions in particular, is a really special thing. And, you know, when I went to Afghanistan, I didn't have a background in cultural heritage as I said, I was a science teacher. So I have fallen in love with it in the middle of a war zone because, so I sort of work and live in this world of international development, which is primarily about wealthier, more stable countries giving aid money to poor, less stable countries. It's fundamentally about problems. It's about poverty. You know, this area is the poorest. Uh, there's no clean water. They don't know how to treat their women well. They're corrupt. It's actually a pretty nasty entry conversation, even with the best of intentions. But if you are working in cultural heritage, in preserving these traditions with these women and men, it's a fundamentally different conversation. It's basically saying you have this incredible inheritance, this asset that is beautiful and joyful and nuanced, and it is priceless to you, to your community, but to the world as well. And actually... Other people want to know about it too. And you can probably sell things that are based in it and bring income back to your family. Now we can then build all these other programs to support what's difficult about life around it. But I do think that working in the most difficult of situations in jewelry and in traditions is a really lovely, it's a really joyful th thing to be a part of. And, and that's what it, I mean, it's what it looks like on a day-to-day -day basis. And I do think that for women uh, in particular, who are living pretty difficult lives, uh, who have left their homes, who are living with conflict, who can't leave their homes in some cases. It does matter to do something that brings a bit of pride and joy and relief and meditation. Mm. Uh, it is different than just getting a paycheck, I think. Yes. And also memory, memory of some of the things that they, they've left that they love. Absolutely. And I find this with the Afghan diaspora uh, in particular, that, you know, connecting to Afghan traditions through videos of oral history and you know, stories and the making of traditional Afghan instruments. I, I think it's hard. But I think it is a connection to, to the past. And when you don't live where your inheritance is from, it's all the more important, if, mm. if not difficult. And what do you think we learn in the West? What, what can we learn from their traditions and cultures? Gosh, I mean, I think we... <laughs> um, I think it's, a, it's like the gateway to just connecting us as humans rather than as sort of nation states. Mm -hmm. um, 
I watched this happen when we did an exhibition at the Smithsonian Museum in Washington. And actually, Pippa was a great help to a wonderful Afghan jeweler, Saida, who exhibited there, and they sort of jointly designed this piece. This was an exhibition about the restoration of the old city of Kabul and preserving these traditions, everything that we do. It's called Turquoise Mountain, Artists Transforming Afghanistan. And the way the narrative went was, you know, people enter and they get a video with the very traditional narrative of Afghanistan, which is the way that people usually connect to Afghans. Terrorism, refugees, burqas. And then they enter the space and they just meet the country through five individuals, five traditions. So you're meeting all of a sudden a country, but a tradition through an individual, in many cases a woman, and through emeralds and through dyed wool and the pomegranate skin that made that red color. And that, you know, that teaches you about the trees and the fruit in that place. And you, you understand that it's a very mountainous region. So all of a sudden you're on humanity. You're on nature and food and tradition. So I think that what we learn is is not so much sort of one-way transmission, but more like it's just the way to connect person to person that I that I love. Mm, I completely agree. I think jewelry is what does brings people together and emphasizes their similarities rather than their differences. Yeah, I th- I, and I think jewelry is sort of most like that of all the traditions that I work with because we wear it and we, we, you know, even differently from the bed covers that we use, it's some, it is, it's a statement of what we believe in and, and our aesthetic. And I wear, <laughs> I basically worn jewelry made by Turquoise Mountain in many cases made by Pippa Small every day of my life for the last 17 years. It's actually written into my contract. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, 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 think, I hope I experience what the people who buy our jewelry also experience, which is I want people to ask me about my earrings. Mm -hmm. I want to tell them about where those stones came from and the person who made it. And even if they don't ask me, I, you know, I note it a couple of times and as I put it on and it it does Mm -hmm. connect us. Mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely right. And you get the story behind it and the wider story and the history. Yeah. Which is fantastic. So what I want to know, though, is how, how did you come to want to work with this burgeoning idea and business? It, it Total serendipity. I was tagging along with somebody doing research in Afghanistan. It was an adventure. It was an adventure. But I mean, I, I fell in love with the thing very quickly because it was just incredibly active. I remember the first weekend I was there, we were having a calligraphy exhibition at this fort, which is only half restored. There's only half of it that you could do something in. And so I was all of a sudden like helping with some other volunteers and the calligraphy masters curate a calligraphy exhibition in this garden. And it was just fun. You know, you're just digging in to make something beautiful and figure out that just, it's very operational. And I mean, for the first five years of my time there, I was working for and then running the Afghan project. And it was just stomping over building sites, making decisions about wiring and going to see the Afghan government. And that was, you know, I love my job now. And I'm not sure that I have the energy to do the job I was doing, doing then, but there was nothing. I will never love a job as much as, as essentially being the Afghanistan country director. So, and you just haven't come back. I just, <laughs> may I never come back. You're still on your adventure. I'm definitely still on my adventure. <laughs> and what translates best in other markets? Is it the woodwork? Is it the embroidery? Is it the jewellery? What translates best? Jewellery. Jewelry, jewelry, mm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think because you can wear it, and and because it is often women making it. In a way, it can involve all those skills and crafts too, can't it? Because jewelry can be made of anything. Absolutely, I think that's right. We've done some very funky sort of wood mosaic jewelry here in Jordan with a wonderful woman named Sharon Hazam in New York. And how do you fund all these different projects? Oh, it's a great mix. Um, so on average, 75-80% of our funding every year comes from international donors. So that's like USAID, the US government, um, wonderful fund called Aleph, which is the Alliance for Protection of Cultural Heritage and Conflict Zones. So, so you know, large governments and foundations. And then the other 20-25% is from private individuals. And that's mostly US, UK, Middle East. That bit of it is incredibly necessary because 
Our primary health clinic, which saw 20,000 people last year, double what it ever has before because the need is much greater in Afghanistan, two thirds of whom are women and girls, female medical director. I need private individuals to pay for that because I'm not a health charity, right? The US government's not gonna give me money to run a hundred clinics around a country because that's not what we do. It doesn't make any sense for them. So that kind of community support is very funded by individuals, but also because of the nature of the places we work in, the immediacy <laughs> of being able to shift is so important. So when the Taliban took over Afghanistan, um, a lot of donors left. So we had funding from the German government, funding from a number of governments, um, particularly to fund education. It just stopped on a dime. So if I didn't have those private funders, I would have had to close all of those programs. So I think that the, the role of individuals, though it's a smaller proportion, is totally necessary and not replaceable in the, my sort of funding equation. So not, not too much from sales yet, but presumably you, you build that revenue stream. So the sales bit of it is totally central, but doesn't pay for other stuff. And what I mean by that is that we have, and we have worked really hard at it. You know, we've brought probably $17 million worth of products to market over the last you know, particularly 10 years, but we've been working on it for longer than that. I am very proud that that now washes its face. <laughs> In other words, those bringing those sales to market, I'm not subsidizing that. And in fact, that includes the, the design work that goes into it, certainly all the logistics and the packaging and the shipping and all that, right? That washes its face. What it doesn't do is kick off extra money to fund the clinic in the primary school. Right. In fact, it doesn't even fund the training of it. And the reality is that, you know, when you're talking about handmade products, particularly in places with crazy logistics and security issues, these are not low cost producers. And so in order for them to be competitive, if I took extra money out of that, I would just make the artisans less competitive. So I think that's actually, you know, I would love over time, but I'm not sure that that is, I'm not sure that that's the equation. I would rather keep the price the same, sell more of it, get more jobs for artisans and fundraise for the clinic separately, if you know what I mean. So now has His Majesty come to see his dream come to fruition? He has. Um, those have been some of the most fun days of our time because, you know, he has followed it very closely and, and knows a lot of the staff and artisans' names. And so when he gets to meet them in person, it's really special. Um, he visited Afghanistan in 2008, so it's been a while. Visited Jordan last November, or the November before, so met all, all of the master artisans here. And are you all collectively working on a coronation gift? We are, but I'm not going to tell you about it. <laughs> Will it be revealed at some point? I don't know. I have to think about that. It's Selma working on it. Um, yes, we've, we've thought of, we have definitely thought of a coronation gift. But I, I think the thing that um, His Majesty would be most excited about, and we've, we've spoken about it, is just to draw attention to what the artisans are making and where they can be bought. Mm. I mean, he has asked many times, how can we make it more clear that people can buy and can support Afghan women through buying? Um, and so we actually launching a, a, a carpet line um, at Christopher Farr on the King's Road um, just this week. And, you know, Pippa and her jewelry is a constant ambassador. So I think for the coronation, London Craft Week the week after will be an important time for us to, you know, to show off what the artisans, uh, in particular in conflict from across our projects, can do. Um, and hopefully we'll, we'll, you know, bring people to buying. Yes, and you might get some other outlets of people coming to yeah. to take on all the, the, the different aspects of what's being created. But I have to say, the Queen Consort seems to love lapis. Yes. She'll be a great proponent, hopefully, of some of the pieces. Absolutely. I must get on that. Absolutely. <laughs> we have a lot of listeners in the US and Canada, Shoshana. So I'd love to know, can they get hold of Turquoise Mountain products or get to see it at least? Absolutely. Uh if you go on turquoisemountain.org and click where to buy, there's yes. a lovely map and you can figure out stockists. The thing is that the way to create larger scale employment for artisans is really about working with other businesses and not being a B to C, you know, a business to consumer direct supplier ourselves. And that is because it would be the definition of insanity for me to say with the 70 odd craft traditions I represent across four different places, exporting to every continent except Antarctica, 
My market is the world, which is ridiculous. I cannot, no one would think that's possible. So I need to work with people who know their customers. So, it, and, and, it, and it isn't a case either of saying, you know, this is going to be a golf aesthetic or this is going to be a, a, a Western aesthetic because what sells in London and New York is different. And what sold two years ago is different than what sold today. So I need buyers and routes to market. And that's designers like Pippa. That's interior designers who are doing a, a redo of a hotel. I need them to say, not only this is the colors and the motifs and the vibe that I need, but this is the cost I need. I need you to create a product that you can sell to me for $100. That's, that's the way that we can actually match the artisan skills and the materials and the, the cost base to something that can actually get to market. Okay, so you need businesses, galleries, designers coming to you and looking at these skills and commissioning. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, well, we've got a call to action there. Exactly. Um, <laughs> Write to me, please, shoshana at turquoisemountain.org. No, um, absolutely, that's what we need. <laughs> Well, in London, at least, we're looking forward to Craft Week, so we yes. can get to see some things there, so any designers listening. And can't wait to see the coronation gift. I know it'll be something really special. We are excited. It'll be interesting to see where it gets placed. Yes. It will be interesting um, for me to see that, too. <laughs> yes, I don't know enough, and I'm not going to share yet, but it will be, it will be really beautiful. Mm. I'm confident of that. Well, Shoshana, thank you so much for taking time out of your unbelievably busy schedule. We're really grateful. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And I have nothing I love more than talking about jewelry. So thank you. You came to the right place for that. <laughs> I did. It's a real honor to be on. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. Now, if like me, you're going to go onto Pippa's website to look at the Zindagi pendant, 100% of which the profits go to the Zindagi project that she just spoke about, it comes under Afghanistan Aquamarine double pendant with gold bead on gold cord. And you can see underneath about the Zindagi project. So don't Google Zindagi like I did because it won't come up. But thank you for listening. And I, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. For more information about this and other episodes of If Jewels Could Talk, please go to our website carolwalton.com slash podcasts you can find out more about our sponsors at fooliegemstones.com and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast feed share it any way you can and we love to have a rating and a comment now we did mention the king in this episode and from here on now it's full steam ahead to the coronation and as we are in London we are going to have some coronation special episodes coming up which are fantastic so join me again in two weeks for the next jeweled nugget when I'm going to be talking to somebody on the very tip of the world in Tasmania Australia you may wonder what someone living there has to say about the coronation well it turns out a lot and it's quite controversial. I'm going to be talking to someone who's created some of the world's greatest collections of decorative arts and supplied many historic items to the world's leading institutions, written numerous books and catalogues. He is a world leading expert and he has something controversial to say about one of the stones that takes a pivotal part in the coronation. So please join me then and all will be revealed. Goodbye. If Jules Could Talk with Carol Walton is produced by Natasha Cowan, music and editing by Tim Thornton, graphics by Scott Bentley, illustration by Geordie Labanda, and you can find me on Instagram at Carol Walton. <laughs>